Now we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, reading the first of the seven letters to the seven churches, letter to the church at Ephesus. If you have the Bible open, follow along as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but... I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we have emphasized in this series so far the narrative element in the revelation of John's apocalypse. That is, the interrelation of the life of the people of God in the present now of existence on earth with the life of the glorified people of God in the present not yet of existence in heaven. With Revelation chapters 2 and 3, our narrative spotlight falls upon seven churches of the professed people of God in Asia Minor at the end of the first century A.D. That narrative, too, also contains an interface. It is the temporal interrelation between the socio-political story and the ecclesiastical story, or simply stated, the drama in each of the seven letters to the seven churches is anchored in the history of each of the first century churches in their culture and political ethos. This apocalyptic revelation takes historical socio-political factors into account, even as it proclaims transcendent and imminent ecclesiastico-theological factors. The interface here, then, is between the glorified Christ who speaks into the arena of the temporal existence of the seven churches. That narrative drama interfaces with the broader cultural context of those churches. And that is one of the reasons that the sites of these seven churches have been thoroughly excavated by archaeologists ever since the 19th century. And they are still learning as they dig further. So this is the point... of this initial address. That is, these seven churches, 
are the churches of the Asia Minor community, which represent, which worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are embedded in their own socio-political environment. The glorified Christ is speaking out of his environment into theirs. You must therefore understand their environment. And so we will be consecrating in some detail upon the socio-political factors of the background of history of the seven churches as we examine them seriatim. Now that raises the question, or at least should raise the question, why is Ephesus first in the dual interface of socio-political and ecclesiastical narrative? The simple answer to that question is Ephesus was the most prominent socio-political city in Asia Minor at this time, at the end of the first century A.D., It was the most prominent ecclesiastical city in Asia Minor at this time. Its prominence was both socio-political and ecclesiastical. Now, in support of that statement, let me begin with some observations that confirm that suggestion, that, in fact, the Ephesian church was the most prominent Christian assembly in Asia Minor at the time of John's writing. Note the prominence of the Apostle Paul's sojourn in Ephesus for no less than three years, as he states in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. No less than nearly two whole chapters of that book of Acts, chapters 19 and 20, no less than two whole chapters of the book of Acts describe aspects of the lengthy labors of the Apostle Paul in that key metropolitan city. In addition, the longest of Paul's so-called prison epistles is directed to the Ephesian church. Indeed, Ephesus was prominent in the career and legacy of the inspired Apostle Paul. But Ephesus is also prominent in the career and legacy of the Apostle John, at least according to the tradition and reports of the early church fathers. John was pastor or bishop of the Ephesian church, as we have noted before, and it was from that Ephesian pastorate that he was exiled, exiled by the emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos, and from Patmos that he was restored to his pastorate in Ephesus on the death or assassination of the emperor Domitian in 96 AD. The narrative of John's own existential experience interfaces with the narrative of the Ephesian church at the end of the first century AD. So as the Ephesian church was first in the life experience of John, it gains prominence as the preeminent church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Asia Minor and therefore is of first rank and first in order here. Let us consider also some of the features behind this prominence, this prominence of the city itself, which was called in this era the mother of Asia, meaning Asia Minor. 
Ephesus was regarded as the foremost city of the Roman Empire in Asia, fourth largest city in the Imperium, that is in the Roman Imperial world, after Rome, most populous, Alexandria in Egypt next, and Antioch of Syria, where, of course, Christians were first called Christians. The suggestion is that the population of Ephesus at the time in which John was writing this, this recording this revelation, is one quarter of a million souls, 250 million, 250,000 people. Why the great size? Because of the bustling commercial industry of the city of Ephesus. It had a bustling seaport as well as a bustling agora or marketplace. The seaport, first of all, because the commerce and trade from a Mediterranean and Aegean <coughs> docked at the spacious harbor in Ephesus, a harbor which was constantly shifting. That is, the harbor was constantly being moved further and further away from the city proper. Why so? Because of the silting of that harbor. That harbor was located at the mouth of the Caister River. The Caister River, which <coughs> flowed past the northern edge of the city of Ephesus into the Aegean Sea. And as it emptied into the Aegean Sea, it deposited the silt that it carried from the mountains east of the <coughs> coast of Asia Minor, carried that silt into the harbor and began to fill it up and make it unnavigable. Over the years, over the centuries, Time after time after time, the Ephesians shifted, changed, altered the location of that harbor, and the city became further and further and further removed from the harbor and the port docks proper. This is an extremely crucial historical fact. Because of the shifting, changing flux of the harbor in Ephesus, there is a reflection on the environment of the city itself. Now, the second element of commerce which made Ephesus so popular and so important were her marketplaces, the agoras. Here's where trade came not from the seaport traffic, but overland, came from eastern Asia Minor, came all the way from Persia in the old days, or Parthia as it was known at the time, of the Roman Empire because Ephesus was at the end, the westernmost terminus of the so-called Royal Road of the Persian Empire. And that road connected Ephesus with Colossae and other parts of the central pl uh, plateaus of what is, <coughs> what is later known as the Cappadocian region of Asia Minor. Trade arriving at the Aegean Sea, trade coming to the Aegean Sea from the east, <coughs> trade in the marketplace, marketplaces overland, and trade in the marketplaces from seaborne <coughs> commerce. Now, <coughs> not only was Ephesus the preeminent port city on the Mediterranean or Aegean coast of Asia Minor. Ephesus was called the glory and light of Asia in the first century. She was called the glory 
of Asia because of her magnificent shrines, her radiant temples, her amphitheaters, her arenas, her baths, and all the things that make up a great city in the Roman imperial era. She was called the light of Asia because of the lamps and candles embellishing the worship centers of the pagan gods and goddesses of Ephesus. And the most famous of these glorious and lighted temples was the temple of Artemis or Diana. Now it's the same goddess, Artemis in Greek, Diana in Latin, the Greek name for this goddess, and the Roman name for this goddess, but she is the same patron goddess of the city of Ephesus, and her temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The glory light of the Greco-Roman pagan world was located in the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And a glorious and radiant light it was indeed because that temple was 340 feet long, longer than a football field. It was 160 feet wide, wider than a football field. And it was supported by no less than 155 foot high columns. And from the frieze that was supported by those columns, the details of the gods and the and the life of Diana or Artemis, as the case might be, and that temple dominating the, the metropolis, the uh, hillside above the city. Now, in view of this glory light of the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis, we ask ourselves a question about verse 1. Is Christ's appearance in verse 1 a direct antithesis of the light and glory of Ephesus' pagan wonder, namely the temple of Artemis? Notice in that verse, he is in the midst of the seven lampstands. His hand holds the seven stars with their light radiating from his embrace. The seven stars. Archaeology has produced evidence that Artemis or Diana was worshipped with astral or starlight imagery. Is Christ indicating not the light of Artemis's alleged glory, but my light and glory as the Lord God of the church and the new creation? I am all the light and glory of Emmanuel's land. I am, in fact, the light of the world, especially the dark and dismal world of human paganism. Does verse 1 represent an intentional clash between the true light of Christ and the false light of paganism, especially Artemis slash Diana paganism? So verse 1 shifts the Ephesian church's focus from pagan light to Christ as light. 
This is the change, this is the shift that comes to the believer when he or she repents of paganism and by that change, that shift embraces Christ and the gospel of eternal light and life in glory. The shifting change of Christian faith in the midst of the flux, the shifting, changing flux of human paganism, the change from pagan to Christian, the shifting flux of paganism itself, which is ever morphing itself into more sophisticated heathenism. This motif, this theme of change and shifting circumstances dominates the history of Ephesus. Shifting from a once magnificent city to a dismal swamp and a wretched ruin. Political history. The political history of Ephesus is also replete with shifts and changes, this constant flux, like that harbor, constantly in a state of shifting flux. It was conquered by the Lydian king Croesus, legendary for his great wealth, the slogan, rich as Croesus. For Croesus appears to have been the first person to mint Coins, and some of those coins have been discovered. After his conquest of the city of Ephesus in 560 BC, he built the first temple of Artemis or Diana as an expression of his pagan religious devotion to the goddess. The Persians, under Cyrus the Great of biblical fame, conquered Lydia and Croesus in 547 B.C., and thus Ephesus passed with a shift in political fortunes to the Persian Empire. The Greeks conquered the Persians when Alexander the Great took Asia Minor after 333 B.C., and Ephesus became a part of the Greek Empire with its successors. The final political shift for our purposes was the conquest of Asia Minor by the Romans in 133 BC. Rome was firmly in control of Ephesus in the apostolic period. Rome firmly in control of Ephesus in the apostolic period as the temples dedicated by the Ephesians to the emperors Caesar Augustus and Domitian attest. Keep in mind as we move from Caesar Augustus in the history of Roman political ideology, as we move from Caesar Augustus to Domitian, we are moving from one who tolerated being worshipped as a deified human being, namely Caesar Augustus, to one who demanded that he be worshipped as a deified human being, namely Domitian, who demanded that he be labeled Dominus et Deus, Lord and God in English translation. The worship of the emperor as a divine figure, a pagan penchant to worship the state, that is, to elevate the political state and political personage to religious 
ideology with quasi-religious powers. That is what is abroad in the shifting fortunes of the political and socio-political uh, history of Ephesus. Whether it was Croesus or Cyrus or Alexander the Great or Domitian, Ephesians accorded the royal creature God-like absolute power. Yes, the emperor was worshipped as a god on earth. And I note in passing that any political system which practices absolute power over its citizens is but a modern form of ancient paganism. Even that famous temple of Artemis changed over the course of time. Croesus built it, as we noted, but the temple burned in 356 B.C. It was rebuilt and remained in its earthly magnificence beyond the apostolic era. John was undoubtedly aware of its physical grandeur, even as Paul had been during his years in Ephesus. But his glory was reduced to complete ruin by the gods in the third century A.D. Even the ancient city itself, not just the temple, even the ancient city itself disappeared. Disappeared into the silt beds and marshes of the ever-flowing, ever-emptying Caister River. Change and decay and destruction. The shifting fortunes of pagan Ephesus are the narrative of all earthly pagan or man-centered cities, pagan and man-centered cultures, pagan and man-centered political establishments. Change and decay and destruction, all paganism is born with a death wish. They want to destroy. They want to resist. They want to kill. They want to harm and maim. That is the raw heart of ancient paganism. The contrast, even the clash with Christianity, could not be more stark. The riots against Paul and the gospel in Acts 19 are indications of the hatred of the pagan religious establishment to the free and open preaching of the gospel. They were even hostile to you believing it, let alone preaching it. Paganism is intolerant, as Paul learned at Ephesus. Paganism is intolerant as much as it may brag about its tolerance and diversity. It is intolerant and monolithic. John learned the same lesson, exiled from Ephesus for his testimony to Christ. The vortex of the clash is here before us even at the outset of the seven letters. But sadly, this shifting, changing motif invades the church 
at Ephesus. Here was a community of Christians wonderfully converted at the beginning from paganism to Christ by the Apostle Paul when Paul proclaimed the unmerited grace of God to these once dead, now made alive in Christ believers in that place. And you can see the summary of what he preached to them, dead in trespasses and sins, now made alive in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 8. The love of Christ and the love of his salvation, his life of resurrection, light, and glory, the love of walking with him in no darkness, no darkness of the bondage to the elemental forces of paganism, this love of the Son of God, this spiritual and eschatological shift characterized that first generation of the church in Ephesus. That first generation Christian fervor displayed ardor, orthodoxy, antithesis between the gospel and paganism, the truth of the word of God and heresy. The first generation Christians at Ephesus identified with the love of God the Father in the love of God the Son through the love of God the Holy Spirit. But by the time of the rise of the second generation Christians, by the time not of Paul but of John, the Ephesian church had copied the narrative of the city's culture in which it dwelt, copied her history, copied her ideology. The Ephesian church in the last decade of the first century had shifted. She had changed. She had left her first love, verse 5. Verse 4, I'm sorry. Something has shifted. Something has changed in this city of continual and ongoing shifting flux and change. In a city whose harbor had shifted, in a city whose political history had shifted, in a city whose cultural paganism had shifted, the church of Ephesus has begun to take on the flavor of its environment. You have shifted from your first love, Jesus says. You do not love me as you did at first, declares the Lord Jesus. You are in love with yourselves. You are in love with your presumption of orthodoxy. You are in love with your Pauline memory and your Johannine popularity. But you are not in love with me. You are not in love with the Son of God who delivered your fathers and mothers from the bondage of Satan and the degradation of sin with its hellish consequences, namely the wrath of God, which Paul detailed in Ephesians 2, 3 and 5, 6. You were born into the Christian faith, you second generation folk, but you do not love me. You have not been reborn by the Holy Spirit, made alive from the dead as your first fathers and mothers were. You are outwardly Christian, but it's a label. It's a designation. It does not describe the love of your heart. For your heart's delight in the deeds which your fathers rejected, even in the face of persecution, they delighted in the fruits of the Spirit, clothed as they were in the full armor of God. You don't even want to put the armor on. But you and your presumption, you're going through the motions of worship. Your friendship with the world, 
You are delighting in the fruits of the flesh. You are being drawn inwardly into the pagan world of darkness and death from which your first generation fathers and mothers were liberated. I, I, the Lord Jesus, am not your first love. I am not. I was their first love. I am not your first love. You have other lovers. You have other lovers in whom you delight more than in me. Oh, yes, you hate the Nicolaitans as I do, but that's because they're heretical. They're in your church circle teaching against the formal Christian truths which you know in your head. And so you reject them intellectually, but your heart embraces the outside pagan world of your environment as you reject me spiritually. Inside the church, you are on, are, you are on guard against religious error and heresy because it rejects the formal and intellectual and presumptuous truths you were taught. You know your religious rituals and traditions well, and you'll preserve them at all costs. But me? Me you do not love. While you are alert to the formal danger inside the church, you are oblivious to the danger outside the church. And in fact, you pursue that danger in the outside, danger from your culture, danger from the pagan world around you. You pursue that environment with your delight, your fervor, your ardor, your love, your affection. You love the world. That world of your environment pleases you. What surrounds you as you rub shoulders with people in the agoras and marketplaces delights you. But my world does not please you. That world of yours entices you. My world does not. That world dominates you. It is your Lord. I, the real Lord, do not dominate you. You love the tradition and form of Christianity, but not the heart of Christianity, because the heart of Christianity is me. And me, you do not love. Now, lest you think that I, Denison, am too severe with this Ephesian congregation, I want you to notice the imperative in verse 5. Repent. A word which commands a shift or a change in the center of affection. A change in the very core of what your heart loves, what your soul delights in, what pleases you most. This second generation church has fallen away from, shifted from, changed from the first love of the founders of that church. This second generation church is enamored with things other than the primary love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Correct religious traditions, yes. Correct leadership, that is no false apostles, verse 2, yes. All these are a presumptive heritage of the past, the way things have always been done. But a passion for Christ, no. A fervent passion for the world of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, no. They need to repent 
and move out from, shift from, change from the complacency which presumes upon the form of religion, the outer skeleton of Christianity, not the inner heart and soul of Christianity, which is Christ Jesus himself. You have left your first love. Repent. It is not my indictment of them. It is Christ's indictment of them. It is in the text. You have shifted to accommodating yourself with the world around you. Repent. You have never really loved me first. Repent. Your heart has never been really united to my heart. Repent. Or to coin an Old Testament, coin an Old Testament imperative. Circumcise your hearts, not your foreskins. Love me with all your heart, not your complacency, your tradition, your presumption, even your orthodox doctrine, and not your comfortable pagan world. Give me your heart, not your culture. Don't give your heart to your tradition, your history, your religiosity. Give me your heart. Make me your heart's delight first of all. For if you do not, if you do not shift, if you do not change, if you do not change and shift from your present not love me first of all condition, if you do not change, you in this metropolis of shifting changes, if you do not repent, and notice that that word is twice repeated in that verse 5, an emphatic declaration that they need to repent, that they of this second generation have never actually ever repented, as if they say, what we repent, we were born in the church. We were born Christians. Why do we need to repent? We belong to this group of church people. Why do we need to shift and change? We're very happy in the place in which we are, including the world in which we live, in the environment that's all around us. We're very comfortable. I repeat, as Jesus himself does, if you do not repent, then I will come to you. Yes, if you do not shift or change to loving me first and foremost, I will come to you, but not in love. I will come to you in judgment. You are the queen city of Asia Minor, first and foremost in Asia a shining light to the cities of Asia Minor, even a prominent lamp to the churches of Asia Minor, first and foremost in political light and glory, first and foremost in ecclesiastical light and glory. But if you refuse to repent, I will remove your light and glory, which is only ephemeral, temporal, and perishable. Repent, or your lamp will go out, the darkness will overcome you like a shroud, a death shroud, a cloak for a corpse of what was once the church in love with Christ and his rich grace. I am life, not this city. Not this city per se. I am life, not death. And I am light, not this city. Not this church per se. I am light, not darkness. Love me. Love my light. Love my life. Love me. 
for this gospel, this invitation, this declaration, this narrative exposition which I am delivering to you, all this is about me, not thee. Me, not thee. Make me your love center. I will pause there for the break. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to entertain them. Otherwise, stretch your legs. Now, we've concluded the first portion with that emphasis upon the love of Christ as a central feature and that missing from the Ephesian second generation community. But now we want to consider that love of Christ as an eschatological reality. The love of Christ is an eschatological reality, as this text indicates. For Jesus says the love of me is an eschatological vitality. The vitality and reality of an eschatological tree in an eschatological garden paradise. Now you recall the great primeval shift, the change which affected the whole human race at the beginning. That conversion from good to evil which infected all mankind. You recall that presumption which chose a forbidden tree instead of me, says the Lord. You remember that complacency which converted a living soul into a soul dead in trespasses and sin. And life became death in a conversion and shift of rebellion against me. You want to talk about shifting changes. What about the primeval and original shift and change? And the tree in that garden. The protological tree in that protological garden. That tree of life in the midst of that garden was barred to you when you shifted, when you changed. Closed off to you when you shifted and you changed. You shifted and changed and were driven from that garden and access to that tree until I could bring the great and eschatological conversion. I could accomplish by grace the great and eschatological about face. I could grant you the undeserved privilege of eating from that eschatological tree in the eschatological paradise garden of the kingdom of heaven. And that's where I'm talking to you from now. That tree and that garden occur in the first and last book of the Bible. They occur in the first and the last book of the revelation of God and Christ's glory and grace. They stand as the bookends to what is in between. From the one arena to the other. From the one environment to the other. But the crossroads goes through the theanthropic person, goes through the Son of God incarnate. It goes through the second Adam. It goes through the last eschatological man. I'm talking to you out of a redemptive historical reversal. You're living in the midst of reverse change and flux. I've got an unmovable, imperishable, un 
changeable shift. A shift which occurs in the history of redemption and you can be part of it never to be altered, shifted, changed again. But now you need it. Now I'm pleading with you. Come into my tree of life. Come into my garden of paradise. Come to me again. Here is the great and immutable change. The immutable shift. The permanent shift from the tree of death eternal to the tree of life eternal. The permanent and immutable shift from the garden of shame and rebellion to the paradise garden of forgiveness and sanctification. Here is the change in the narrative. Here is the shift in the story which is available only through my love for you and your love for me first and foremost, changed by the omnipotent, effectual love of me for you. My love for you first. Your love for me in response first. Let the magnificent shift and change which I bring to the sinful world, my exchanging my life for death, my shifting shame to blamelessness in myself, my changing places with sinners, there's an eschatological shift again, my changing place with sinners in my sinlessness in order to make the unloved loved of my Father and make the implacable and presumptuous broken and contrite Holding, shifting, changing their love interest from self and world and pleasure to me and my world and the pleasure of God, my Father, by the Holy Spirit. Come to me. Love me most of all. Jesus is saying in this short letter, I have endured the shift and change that is the key to your salvation. I have shifted to your position in a vicarious way so that you may be shifted to union with me and my position in a glorious way. I have become sin in your place. I have become death in your place. I have become the out of the garden shift in your place. And all this out of my love for you that you would shift in repentance. You would overcome your sin in love for me. Repent and overcome your death in and through love for me. Repent and overcome your exile from the garden in love for me. Do you not see love for me is love for life and its tree? Permanent, unchanging, never shifting, life eternal. Do you not see? Love for me is love for the garden paradise of God. Permanent, unchanging, never shifting love of God in his glorious eternal paradise garden. Do you not see? Love for me is overcoming sin and death and the grave. 
permanently, unchangingly, unshiftingly in me. No more sin. No more death. No more grave. I am chained from sin to righteousness so you in me and my love for you may be changed. I am changed from death to life so that you in me and my love for you may be changed. I am changed from a grave to resurrection from the grave so that you in me and my love for you may be changed. I've done it for you. I've been changed for you. You're witnessing shifting and changing harbor freight, so harbor uh, <coughs> territory all the time. I have been changed and shifted for you once and for all. Never to be shifted and changed again. I'll take you out of the flux of your shifting and changing life. So I plead with you again, love me first and foremost. Or you will die. Repent, come to me first and foremost. Or you will die. Overcome in coming to me first and foremost. Or you will die. The one who shifts to an overcomer, who changes to an overcomer, to him or her I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise garden of God. Today, September 13, 2018, the site of Ephesus, the glory of Asia, is a heap of rubble. Today, the once magnificent light of Asia is dark and deserted. Today, her teeming harbor is silent. Her temple of Artemis lies in ruin. One, count them, one out of, out of, <coughs> of a hundred, one lone column marking the spot of her former glory. Today, the mobs and throngs which clamored against Paul are no more. Only their eerie silence echoes and re-echoes. That chorus, great is Diana of the Ephesians. That chorus is no more, replaced by a chorus of frogs and crickets. The sweet smell of incense offered up to the pagan pantheon, has been replaced by the stench of stagnant marsh marsh and swamp. It is a foul-smelling place. Ephesus, the great ancient city, dead and lifeless. Ephesus, the great ancient city, dead, light gone out, Candle removed out of its place. Ephesus, the ancient church, as dead as the city itself. The narrative of the church in Ephesus shifts. It shifts from life to death because there was no genuine and sincere, no real love of Christ Jesus as first and foremost in a pagan Ephesian culture. Repent, you erstwhile Christians. 
You erstwhile Christians who in truth love your cultural environment more than me, says the Lord Jesus, repent or your light too will be snuffed out and you too will die as the ancient Ephesian church did. Ephesus, first in rank, first in order of the seven letters, first to be dead and barren. Take note, take note. Christian, wherever you be, the message of Christ to the churches is still he that overcomes, he that overcomes the shifting cultural changes. He overcomes the lack of love for me. He will eat from the tree of life. Shall we pray? Father, you have alerted us to the situation in history and in ecclesiology of the life of the Ephesian church during and after the revelation of this letter. And in so alerting us, you have also invited us to search our own hearts and to see that indeed we repent of not loving you first and foremost. And then, O Lord, we would love to be drawn into the wonder and magnificent of that tree of life in that Eden of God in heaven. Draw our hearts upward then, O Lord. Let us be sojourners in the world and not residents of it. Let us be always looking steadfastly unto Jesus as the beloved author and finisher of our faith. And let us heed his warning here that unless we indeed turn about, unless we make him first in our love, then we too shall die outside the paradise garden of God. May it not be so of us, we pray, O Lord, in your mercy and grace, give us repentance unto life through Jesus Christ our Lord by your spirit. Amen.